Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers a period from March 1st, 2023 to April 4th, 2023. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10, at a March 2nd meeting of Securities and Exchange Commission's Investor Advisory Committee, speakers examined the drivers and implications of the growth in private markets relative to public markets. Those speakers included Stephen Kaplan, the Neubauer Family Distinguished Service Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance, and Kesney, EP Faculty Director at Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Mr. Kaplan touted the benefits of investing in the private market. He said private equity in general has grown so significantly because its CEOs can spend more time on value creation and less time on compliance as opposed to CEOs of public companies that are subject to many rules and regulations. To make becoming a public company more attractive, Mr. Kaplan suggested changing the frequency of some of the reporting requirements, such as Section 404 of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and self-attestation from every year to every other year. Mr. Kaplan also recommended changes to make litigation against companies more difficult to pursue. Elizabeth DeFontenay, professor of law at Duke University, said the combination of increased regulation of public companies and the deregulation of private firms has led to a decline in the number of IPOs in public companies. She explained that the deregulation of private capital changes the dynamic of the public-private divide. Professor DeFontenay also said that today, private firms can raise unlimited capital without providing any disclosure to the public or experiencing regulatory burdens. To balance out the situation and help boost the number of public companies, Professor DeFontenay recommended eliminating some regulations for public companies and increasing them for private firms. Tyler Galash, president and CEO of the Healthy Markets Association, highlighted the concerns that have emerged as a result of the deregulation of private companies. He noted that insider trading is a common and accepted practice in private markets. Mr. Galash also pointed to the questionable valuations that venture capital funds advertise to potential investors. He recommended that the SEC require a baseline of disclosure, regulation, and financing at companies that have a certain number of investors, regardless of whether they are private. Number nine. On March 6th, in connection with the Council of Institutional Investors Spring Conference, Executive Director Amy Boris queried Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler about the host of rulemakings that the Commission has drafted and issued. Chair Gensler emphasized the requirements in the SEC's March 2022 proposed climate disclosure rule pertain to information that companies already have been providing and investors have been considering. He explained, we are just trying to bring consistency and comparability to that information. 
Chair Gensler added that under the proposed rule, far more companies will be required to disclose their scope one and scope two emissions than their scope three emissions. The SEC chair said when drafting the proposed climate disclosure rule, the commission was mindful about staying within the laws and how judges have interpreted those laws, including the Federal Administrative Procedures Act. Chair Gensler applauded the International Sustainability Standards Board for developing climate disclosure standards for approximately 200 jurisdictions, but fell short of endorsing those standards. Chair Gensler said, we appreciate what they're doing, but we need to stick to the 15,000 comment letters we received on our proposal. When asked about SEC rules on disclosures related to human capital management and board diversity, Chair Gensler acknowledged that they could face legal challenges and stressed that the SEC is merit neutral on all of its rulemakings. The SEC chair admitted that there is a need for investors to better understand jurisdictional issues related to taxes and noted that the Financial Accounting Standards Board is working on that issue. In terms of the current crypto implosions, Chair Gensler said there's nothing incompatible about crypto and the securities laws. He warned that if companies have been trying to avoid the law, they need to come into compliance or we will be a cop on the beat. Number eight, on March 16th, the Council of Institutional Investors sent the Securities Exchange Commission a letter amending the commission for its final rules on clawbacks of erroneously awarded compensation, proxy voting advice, pay versus performance, and its proposed rules on equity market structure modernization. Correspondence, which commented on the SEC's semi-annual regulatory agenda, also recommended that the SEC address two other important issues in rulemakings. First, CII expressed disappointment that the commission included language in its final pay versus performance rule that could expand the use of non-GAAP financial measures for determining executive compensation without also requiring a quantitative reconciliation of the non-GAAP amounts to the related GAAP amounts. The letter noted that in 2019, CI filed a petition with the SEC asking that the compensation discussion and analysis section of the proxy statements include an explanation of why non-GAAP measures are better for determining executive pay than GAAP measures, and that the compensation discussion analysis section include a quantitative reconciliation of those two sets of numbers. Letter explains that CII believes it's imperative. The SEC proposed a rule to require at a minimum that companies include a hyperlink to a gap reconciliation for any non-gap pay targets contained in their compensation discussion and analysis section of their proxy statement. Second, CII urged the SEC to prioritize end-to-end vote confirmation as a next step to improving proxy plumbing. Letter recommended that the SEC consider promptly issuing a proposal requiring end-to-end vote confirmations to end users, potentially with a phase-in approach starting with the largest companies. Proposed rule could require all participants in the voting chain to grant to companies or their transferred agents or vote tabulators access to certain information related to voting records for the limited purpose of enabling a shareholder or securities intermediary to confirm how particular shareholder shares were voted. The letter concluded by stating, we believe 
that proposing such a rule could provide a basis for continuously uncovering and remediating some of the long-standing flaws in the proxy plumbing system. Number seven, on March 23rd, the Council of Institutional Investors sent a joint letter with the CFA Institute and the Healthy Markets Association to Securities Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler. Letter requests that the SEC allow the October 2017 temporary no-action relief granted to the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association to expire so that institutional investors would be able to purchase research separately from services tied to trading securities. CI letter notes that consistent with CI's membership approved policies, many institutional investors oppose bundled services because they result in paying for unwanted research. Providers counter that the bundled approach ensures broad analyst coverage of the market, particularly among small cap companies. CI's letter explains that the expiration of the no action letter would force a U.S. research provider in Europe that is not already registered as an investment advisor to take one of three steps. One, register as an investment advisor, eligible to receive separate payments for research from clients covered by the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive 2, or so-called Method 2. Two, to move its research provision under an already registered affiliate, or three, make other changes including no longer accepting payments for research in Europe. CII, CFA Institute, and Healthy Markets Association said they anticipate that if the October 2017 no-action letter is allowed to expire, many of the remaining unregistered research providers would register as investment advisors and would then be able to accept payments from research customers not covered by MIFID II, including those in the United States. Ultimately, this unbundling would boost competition and transparency by disclosing how much fund managers are paying for research. Letter goes on to say that in our view, this would ultimately benefit not only entities covered by MIFID II, but also U.S. investors, independent trading firms, and independent research providers' customers. Letter also asks the SEC to change its related rules or guidance, require two items. One, Investment advisors that seek to rely on the safe harbor for best execution under Section 28E of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 should be required to implement policies and procedures to disclose amounts paid for research from client assets. And two, investment advisors that seek to rely on the safe harbor to implement best execution policies and procedures should be required to ensure that the research benefits the asset owners who pay for it. It's been publicly reported that European asset managers have cut their spending on research by three quarters from pre-MIFID II levels. That suggests to us that European asset managers had limited regard for bundled research. Number six, on March 30th, in a speech at the Fixed Income Forum Spring Roundtable, Commissioner Carolyn Crenshaw of the Securities Exchange Commission said the U.S. fixed income and options markets need a structural overhaul. Commissioner Crenshaw indicated that equity market structure tends to get a lot of attention, and this is especially true in the post-GameStop era. However, by some measures, investor protection and outcomes in the fixed income and options markets lag behind. 
Bishop Crenshaw noted that while there have been reforms to the U.S. fixed income markets in recent years, such as expanded reporting that has improved transparency, the fixed income markets are still considerably less transparent and can be much more costly for investors than stocks traded on U.S. exchanges. Mr. Crenshaw called for improved pre-trade price transparency in the fixed income markets to enhance competition and lower costs for investors. She said the SEC also needs better visibility into market intermediaries and trading platforms. And she proposed expanding disclosure of markups and markdowns, which refer to the difference between the price of a bond the customer paid and the price the dealer paid for the bond. Turning to the options markets, Commissioner Crenshaw said the features of retail trading on the equity markets that have led to concerns about the lack of competition are even more pronounced in the options markets, which she said account for the largest share of payment for order flow. Mr. Crenshaw suggested several reforms, including applying the equity order competition rule the SEC proposed in December 2022 to the options market and considering caps on access fees, like the proposed caps on fees that exchanges can charge for equities. Number five, in a March 30th letter to the Securities Exchange Commission, the Council of Institutional Investors weighed in on some of the key provisions in the SEC's recent market structure reform proposal. The letter generally supports the provisions of the Commission's NMS proposal calling for lower access fee caps. Correspondent says that the reduction in fee caps could lower trading costs for long-term investors and help lessen the impact of rebates and fee avoidance on order routing and the quality of execution. CI's letter also explains that setting exchange fees so that the amount of the fee or rebate allocated to a particular trade is known at the time the trade is executed could help eliminate the conflicts of interest by potentially resulting in broker-dealers passing along rebates to individual customers. While generally agreeing with SEC Chair Gary Gensler that a best execution standard at the commission level would lead to better execution for retail and institutional investors, CII expresses concerns about two provisions in the SEC's best execution proposal. First provision of concern would exempt from the commission's best execution standard a broker or dealer or a natural person who is an associated person of a broker or dealer when an institutional customer exercising independent judgment executes its order against the broker or dealer's quotation. Letter warns that the proposed exemption for certain institutional customers could result in some investors, particularly smaller institutional investors with less market power being unable to obtain the best execution of their trades. See, I request that the SEC reconsider the exemption in its entirety, consider narrowing the scope of the exemption, or making the exemption conditional. The second provision that CII has concerns about in the best execution proposal would require broker-dealers to establish written policies and procedures designed to comply with the best execution standard. Letter points out that when describing the requirements for those policies, the SEC did not include a requirement that brokers analyze and make routing decisions on an order-by-order order basis. CI Sports has a reasonable alternative requiring 
order-by-order documentation for all transactions. Finally, in the letter, CI agrees with the goal of the order competition proposal, which is to provide greater opportunity for retail and institutional orders to interact with the public markets. But CII cautions that institutional investors may not expend much effort to participate in the new auction mechanisms created by the proposal because of concerns about leakage of trading information. Number four, in an April 3rd letter to the Securities Exchange Commission, the Council of Institutional Investors commented favorably on the New York Stock Exchange LLC and the NASDAQ Stock Market LLC separate notices of filing of proposed rule changes to establish listing standards related to recovery of erroneously awarded executive compensation. The CI letter notes that the SEC supported the SEC's underlying final rule on listing standards for recovery of erroneously awarded compensation approved in January 2023. CI's letter also notes that CII was actively involved in the drafting and advocacy for the language that became Section 954 of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act that mandated the SEC rule. In comparing the two approaches, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ proposed for the delisting process related to the recovery of erroneously awarded compensation, CI's letter indicated that the lack of direct investor participation in the New York Stock Exchange delisting process makes CII less confident that the New York Stock Exchange procedures related to the SEC rule, will be conducted in a manner that protects investors and the public interest. As one example, letter notes that CI's concern that in knowing that immediate suspension will be the outcome for noncompliance with the New York Stock Exchange proposal, New York Stock Exchange staff would be more likely to determine that recovery of erroneously awarded executive compensation was performed reasonably promptly as required under the SEC rule, even when most investors would conclude otherwise. Number three, on March 1st, the United States Senate adopted a Congressional Review Act resolution by a vote of 50 to 46. The resolution that had been approved by the United States House of Representatives on February 28th by a vote of 219 to 200 disapproves a Department of Labor December 2022 final rule. That final rule amended the investment duties regulation under Title I of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act to clarify that retirement plan fiduciaries may consider climate and other ESG factors in selecting retirement investments and exercising shareholder rights when those factors are relevant to the risk and return analysis. The December 2022 final rule, which went into effect on February 1st, changed or rescinded provisions in rules implemented during the Trump administration. For example, the December 2022 final rule clarifies that a fiduciary's duty of prudence must be based on factors that the fiduciary determines are relevant to a risk and return analysis, and that these factors may include the economic effects of climate change and other ESG considerations on the particular investment. More broadly, the final rule also requires the fiduciary to prudently conclude that competing investments equally serve the financial interests of the plan over the appropriate time horizon. 
such cases, the fiduciary is not prohibited from selecting the investment based on collateral benefits, meaning benefits other than investment returns. December 2022 Department of Labor rule also included the core principle that when a plan's assets include stock, the fiduciary duty to manage plan assets includes the management of shareholder rights related to those shares, including the right to vote proxies. Number two, on March 20th, President Joe Biden vetoed the aforementioned Congressional Review Act resolution that would rescind the Department of Labor's December 2022 final rule. In a public statement, President Biden said the resolution would prevent retirement plan fiduciaries from taking into account factors such as the physical risks of climate change and poor corporate governance that could affect investment returns. President Biden said consideration of these factors is not controversial, but common sense. Reaction to the veto fell along party lines. AFL-CIO President Liz Shuler commented that while some politicians want to claim that ESG standards are a way for investors to force a woke agenda on Americans' retirement investment strategies, their politicized strategy is entirely false, ill-informed, and just plain wrong. Ms. Schuler added that by using reality-based considerations when investing our hard-earned dollars, investors using an ESG lens are doing something their critics refuse to do, deal in reality, not rhetoric. Representative Andy Barr of Kentucky, who sponsored the House resolution to rescind the Department of Labor rule, blasted President Biden's veto. He said, instead of siding with Americans who are increasingly unable to afford retirement, Biden's veto puts the climate activists and special interest groups he is beholden to ahead of middle-class American investors. Josh Lichtenstein, a partner at law firm Ropes and Gray, said the legislation and veto were much to do about nothing. He commented that the more public action we see from Republican members of Congress, Republican governors, and Republican attorneys general against the DOL rule, the more likely it is that they can convince people that the Labor Department did something radical. The truth is they did not do anything radical at all. And the number one most significant development in U.S. corporate governance capital market regulation for the period from March 1st to April 4th occurred on March 10th when the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation closed the doors to Silicon Valley Bank and named the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation as the bank's receiver. As of December 31st, 2022, Silicon Valley Bank had approximately $209 billion in total assets and about $175.4 billion in total deposits. Silicon Valley Bank was the first FDIC-insured institution to fail in 2023. And prior to Silicon Valley Bank, the last FDIC-insured institution to close was Alameda State Bank in Alameda, Kansas, back on October 23rd, 2020. That completes my monthly U.S. corporate governance and capital markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, 
J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.